Coming up next is my conversation with the poet, musician, composer, performer, and Torah teacher, Alicia Jo Rabins. While Alicia is here today to talk about her poetry, we do also talk about the ways her poetry intersects with her song composing and with performance, and even the ways her poetry intersects with the way one studies the Talmud, or the ways her own form of both contemporary and biblically rooted Jewish feminism informs these poems. But because she's doing so many other things, making films, writing rock operas, developing study guides about the difficult lives of biblical women, creating contemporary Jewish feminist rituals. Before we begin our conversation about her poetry, I wanted to also put trailers and teasers and links to her other work up on the Patreon page in case you wanted to explore these other aspects of her life in more depth after listening to the show. Whether you are a listener or a listener and a supporter of the show, either way, you can check out all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, musician, composer, and Torah teacher, Alicia Jo Rabins. Rabins has a BA in English and Creative Writing from Barnard College, an MFA in Poetry from Warren Wilson, and an MA in Jewish Women's Studies from the Jewish Theological Seminary. A classically trained violinist, Rabins toured for eight years as the violinist in Brooklyn-based klezmer punk band Gollum, and tours internationally as the songwriter and bandleader of Girls in Trouble, an indie folk song cycle about the complicated lives of biblical women. Rabins is also the composer of a one-woman chamber rock opera called Akadosh for Bernie Madoff, about the intersection of spirituality and finance, which was named one of Portland's five best theater performances of the year by Willamette Week, and which is now becoming an independent feature film. In addition, as if that were not enough, Rabins is a bar and bat mitzvah tutor, Torah teacher, and conjurer of contemporary feminist Jewish rituals. Alicia Jo Rabin's debut book of poetry, Divinity School, was chosen by C.D. Wright for the American Poetry Review Honickman First Book Prize and was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award. Her chapbook, The Girl Who Wants to Be a Landscape, was selected by Mary Oliver for the Artscape Poetry Prize. Her poetry has appeared in the American Poetry Review, Boston Review, Plowshares, among many other places, 
and she's here today to talk about her second collection of poetry out from Augury Books entitled Fruit Geode. Major Jackson says of Fruit Geode, Against the tide of received wisdoms about mothering and loving, one can only marvel at the personal cosmology Alicia Joe Rabins builds in these poems. Fruit geode amounts to a kind of ritualistic reclaiming of the body and spirit as mother and artist in the presence of both her progeny and her ancestors who watch as she spirits herself into song again and again. Lynn Melnick adds, how does a body do what it does? Make love, mistakes, create life, exist after life. How does a body evolve, celebrate, regret, reconsider its big and small moments? These are the passionate concerns of Alicia Rabin's Fruit Geode, a book that I could not stop reading once I started, a book that drew me in with intimacy and force and then grabbed my heart hard which is to say, if you have a body, this book is a must-read. Welcome to Between the Covers, Alicia Joe Rabins. Thanks, David. So let's start with the title, Fruit Geode, which ha- is, feels like an odd pairing of words, but also a pairing of words that really, I think, captures a lot of what the collection is wrestling with. So tell us what happened that created this pairing of fruit and geode. I think the, the kind of large-scale meta answer is that I'm generally obsessed with opposites and how they contain each other. And this, you know, the kind of maxim of as above, so below. Um, And the literal embodiment of that, that led directly to this title was uh, having my two children and the process of pregnancy um, and birth and the sense, I mean, specifically how a pregnant belly is this kind of taut, self-contained, geode-like orb um, that looks so simple from the outside, and then on the inside contains essentially this human fruit. And, you know, many people get these emails from websites that say the size of your fetus each day um, with you know, compared to what fruit it's the size of. Um, and just more broadly, how the natural world has, you know, the hardest rock and the and the softest fruit is all contained in nature. Well, I kept uh, sort of parsing what I thought the fruit was and what I thought the geode was in the collection, and they kept switching meaning. But one of the motifs of the collection is this idea of being broken open. And You've called being broken open an impossible combination of deliciousness and violence, and also a wild flourishing that is also a surrender to extinction. So in a way, when I was thinking of those, I was my first impulse was to associate the geode with the surrender to extinction and the fruit to the flourishing wildly. But you could look at it the opposite way, I think, also, that perhaps the beauty and the flourishing of pregnancy and early motherhood uh, can only be found through going through it, uh, which I think is something that you're evoking in Fruit Geode, that only by being broken open through the process do you see what's inside the geode. So in a sense, the geode would be the the wild flourishing, Mm -hmm. and the fruit would be associated with extinction of of something that appears and is transient and ephemeral and, and 
maybe in the way that uh, one's identity or one's body is consumed and irrevocably. But I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about this question of being broken in relationship to um, these images that you've put together. Yeah. You know, I I have to say I was blessed to have a healthy pregnancy and um, healthy outcomes, although difficult births um, of of both my pregnancies. So I'm I'm aware of the privilege of that. Um, And and it was even more shocking to me that within that privilege – I felt so completely, <laughs> you know, so glad and overjoyed and aware of the blessings and also so utterly kind of devastated and broken open by uh, the loss of my previous life, especially with the first baby, um, which also coincided with moving across the country. So there was kind of a double, it was a very stark um, breaking for me from the 30 four years I lived as one person. Um, the transition to motherhood was it was very complicated and I experienced it as a kind of breaking. Um, but I also, I think, you know, in the same way that you have to kind of split a melon open to get to the sweet part and you have to, you know, a geode is this whole self-contained um, object and not until you basically violently smash it open do you see the luminous unlikely beauty inside of it. And so I think um, on both physical and uh, emotional and spiritual levels, that really resonated with with my experience. I mean, I think there's a natural human resistance to being broken. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want it. Um, but so often on the other side of that brokenness lies sort of clear-eyed vision or, or um, a deeper awareness of what's actually happening. Because in the, in the you know, in the stories that we tell ourselves that keep us feeling whole in a tight way, um, there can be a lot of illusion and there can be a lot of actually energy released in the breaking of that, even though it can be very painful. I don't think you nod to this directly in Fruit Geode, but I wondered about the origin story or the birth story of the earth from a Jewish mystical perspective. So God fills 10 spheres, Sephirot, with his light or her light in, um, in different qualities of God fill these, these different spheres um, or Sephirot, but they can't contain it, so they shatter. And the earth that we know, according to Jewish mysticism, and maybe you can, maybe you can correct me if I'm characterizing this wrong, but the earth that we know is the hidden shards, the, the hidden luminousness of those original spheres. So in a way, it feels like this question of brokenness being a sort of wholeness in and of itself. So the world that we operate in is is inherently a broken world. Um, I, I wondered if that connected back, if this question of the geode connects back to this question of um, Jewish mystical origin stories. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not an like academic expert in mysticism, so I may be wrong, but the way that I learned it is that there's um, a kind of Lorianic, so Rabbi Isaac Loria had a, um, who's a famous mystic, had an origin story where the worlds, where God channeled God's energy into into vessels. I'm not, I, I'm not aware that they were the spherot, but they might have been, and those vessels shattered because they couldn't handle God's light. And then these fallen vessels are the world, which means that each of them contains a spark of godly divinity 
the f- so when we eat food, for example, and then use that energy to do something positive in the world, that is releasing or liberating that spark, which again is a kind of breaking. I mean, you have to consume and destroy the food <laughs> in order to liberate the energy inside it. Um, and then the spheroids that I'm aware of, so these, there's these... Um, yeah, sort of energy centers. There's a kind of beautiful tree of life map. And that the, the way that I learned it was that there's um, actually 10 levels of them. And so that, abs- that where they kind of replicate and the highest level is pure divinity. And the lowest level, not necessarily in a bad way, but just the, the lowest is us on earth. And so they all, it's another kind of as above, so below. And so they all re- kind of reflect each other and the, the light is filtered from um, the divine form into our forms and our bodies also reflect. So our bodies also have essentially Jewish chakras, which are um, these energy centers that mirror the makeup of the divine um, energy, the energy channels of the divine, essentially. And it is in my book, actually, when there's a poem that ends that um, uh, something about I lay on the birthing table um, and my body was split into two halves, compassion and judgment. And those are actually two of the spherot. And they're kind of two of the elemental ones that are opposite and necessary. Each is necessary. um, And the balance of them is necessary to kind of generate life. Even though even though fruit geode was written in a different context than your first book divinity school um so for for one i believe that divinity school is a collection of poems over a much longer period of time is that that is true that is true (laughs) but also that future geode is more specifically focused on a period of life absolutely so pregnancy and early birth and early motherhood it still felt like there were some um resonances thematically for me between the two books uh your first book has the epigraph by Carlo Levy that says the future has an ancient heart. And then this amazing introduction by C.D. Wright, which also feels like could be a skeleton key for a fruit geode. And I just wanted to read one of the parts of what she says um, about Divinity School. This is a book that makes the great mysteries as real as potholes, but does not presume to know how to fill them. Nevertheless, the need to ask is enormous. She has a means of distillation that projects an impression of light around its object before dissolving back into the surround we must all fumble, grope, stagger through. So like the this idea of the making of mysteries as real as potholes feels very alive in Fruccio to me, as well as this idea of the future ha- having an ancient heart. And it makes me think of the ways over and over again, you, you create an energy in your poems by insisting upon the contemporary as well as the ancient. So there's this juxtaposition or maybe a friction between the mundane and the sacred. And in this way, I think of the fruit as the present moment and the geode as the ancestry. Um, but I don't know if this is a question, but I just wondered, I wanted to hear your thoughts about um, the ways that you try to take the mundane, the potholes, and somehow limb them to a mis- the mystery of being alive. Yeah. Well, if can I rewind for one second and just say that I felt like I didn't fully address your last question, the the part about you know the influence of Jewish mysticism and, I, and brokenness, um, and I and I do. I mean, pretty much everything I create is influenced by 
um, Jewish texts and traditions, which came into my life um, in my early 20s. So I didn't grow up with them very strongly, um, but I went very deeply into them when I found them. But also, um, I mean, I'm, I'm really... Uh, I really love Buddhist teachings and practice and, um, you know, I've done a, a lot of yoga um, exploration. So I think, you know, I, I think in a way the structures of the Jewish texts are what I'm most uh, familiar with in their details. But I do find this resonance with all of the all of the spiritual practices that I've been involved with that resonates with that sense of needing to break in order to fully awaken. I mean, even the Christ myth, I think. I mean... Um, well, there's also the Hasidic... I don't remember who said this, but it's something like um, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. Yes, the Zohar, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And and kind of having the courage to to walk into the pain and and pass pass through it that way as opposed to spending your entire life trying to fend it off and never never going through it um and then in terms of the question you actually just asked um and by the way i say christ myth respectfully i see at the same way i would refer to my own traditions uh legends and and stories as myths um i i think part of what i spoke about at the very beginning of my fascination with as above so below and things containing their opposites is the fact that we live both in a moment that is constantly passing and is so infinitesimal and intangible. And yet we do have access to these millennia of human received wisdom and traditions. And, you know, we kind of touch it in our – the ancestors that we've gotten to know, parents, grandparents, and, and the, if we have children or if we teach children or just interact with the younger generation, we're touching – through them, the people who will come after as well. And that is a really central concern, I think, of of everything that I <laughs> do, including getting through the day, walking down the street, is just kind of balancing and negotiating how it is that we simultaneously live in these two modes, kind of like a point and a line at the same time. And one thing I really fell in love with when I got to know Jewish traditions and began to study them seriously is the way that ritual, to me, helps locate me in those vast millennial spaces while also bringing me fully into the moment. So ritual and ritual practice and also studying texts that have been in so many other people's mouths for so many generations and hopefully will be is another practice that um, sort of ties a, a knot where what your body and mind are doing at this moment is literally also part of a, a stream that has not stopped for many, many centuries. I think that's part of my way of just negotiating, negotiating that essential mystery. Would you read for us uh, beautiful, a beautiful virus? Because I think that's a, one of the particularly good poems that show this juxtaposition of modes. Beautiful virus. Like arsenic in chocolate, like a pea shoot in mud, you broke me open into death in life. A beautiful virus, uncontrollably growing as the morning glories climb the raspberries that choke the grapes that overrun the spinach. What I mean to say is 
knocked off the pedestal of wholeness. Now I watch you breathe in your miniature flamingo pajamas. Been listening to Alicia Joe Rabin's read from Fruit Geode. So the way you employ the pink flamingo pajamas to me, <laughs> of sort of the modern ordinariness of that and the contemporary sort of relatability of it seems to me like it serves as an, an an antidote to the way the poem could wax poetically in sort of an elevated lyric about the glories of motherhood. There's some way in which I feel like um, switching registers there, for me at least, is one of the great pleasures of the poem, that when we get to the knocked off the pedestal of wholeness, it feels like you aren't just talking about giving birth and becoming a mother, but also that the pajamas are knocking the poem off of its pedestal of wholeness. <laughs> I love it. But I didn't know if, I guess I, what I wondered is more on sort of like looking at an Ars Poetica, like, is there something about the poem not being too whole that makes it a better poem? I'm not saying this poem isn't whole, but I feel like there's some way in which um, the tonal switch um, knocks it off a sense of wholeness and somehow makes it a more whole poem at the same time. Well, thank you. I mean, this whole book, the form, if you kind of flip through, is pretty different from um, Divinity School. My first book has a lot of dense, um, either short, dense kind of wisdom text style blocks, rectangular, almost prose poem blocks, or long, multi-stanza dense poems. And most of the poems in Fruit Geode are either 1.5 or two spacing. And I was very, <laughs> a lot of back and forth with my editor and publisher. I was very, I was very intentional about wanting this space, um, and where it was 1.5 and where it was two and where it was actually combined. And I think part of that is the sense of like, I didn't want to take this experience, which for me had a lot to do with absolute messiness. I mean, physical and emotional and, put a bow on it and, and make it palatable. I wanted to create poems that were kind of bloody and reflected bloody and ethereal at the same time, <laughs> um, like the experience was and is, and, and that, which reflected that, that sort of like basically utter humility of being like, I don't have any answers. <laughs> I'm kind of giving you impressions of what's happening right now. And I mean, I almost feel like I, I was, it's almost like every poem is a prayer to to the reader to to help me kind of understand this moment and um, do the best I can in it. So is this idea of of maybe knocking the poem off its pedestal linked very specifically to the fact that you're engaging with motherhood and the messiness of birth and motherhood, or do you find that surprise uh, that surprise shift and change of registers is an important part of poetry? for you or the 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 quality a quality that you value in in poems i i like to write in a lot of different modes i really treasure i mean i make art in a lot of different modes and then within each mode <laughs> i i like to be kind of wide-ranging um because it feels to me like freedom and possibility um so i one of my most influential teachers was kenneth coke um and uh, who taught at Columbia when I was an undergrad at Barnard. So I would trek across the street 
um, to take all of his classes. And, you know, I took myself very seriously as a poet in high school. And he basically dumped cold water on the (laughs) entire idea of taking oneself seriously as a poet. And simultaneously, he was a life dedicated, lifelong poet, you know, who had given his life to writing and teaching, which was just a beautiful combination. Um, So he definitely was sort of like, whoa, let's keep it a little lighter here. Like, do we have to be kind of intense all the time? And from him, I think I learned that turn, which I kind of associate with um, Dunn and Herbert and those that, that era of being, you know, both highly intellectual, but also kind of trying to be light on your feet and, um, you know, kind of sexy and humorous. And I mean, I, I think it's, it's part of also a way I like to try to, to live where you're really deeply in the moment and really feeling it and really, you know, sitting with it, but also remembering the silly things and just kind of not taking your own narrative of the experience too seriously. And so I think poetically, I, I do love to play with that. That said, I also love poems that would never think to do that because they're so fully themselves in a different direction. So it's not like in my or anyone else's work, I, I kind of need to check that box. But I, I do love it as a kind of craft move. So you've quoted Allen Ginsberg in an essay that you wrote for Plowshares called Writing as Performance Art, where he says – don't get hypnotized into some false universe of pure imagery. And I think of this seduction of pure imagery as something, your pink pajama strategy, and also making the mysteries as real as potholes is working against. Um, So maybe in line with the spirit of Ginsburg's quote. And I I also think of like Afghan carpets where uh, they always put, or traditionally you always would put a variation in the pattern because mm-hmm. the idea was that if it was too symmetrical, it would be less pleasing to the eye, which made me wonder about your thoughts about the poem on the page, the poem confronted as a visual object, the one that's more static. So the more, let's call it the geode poem uh, versus the performance of the poem in real time, which you do um, in front of people. And especially because you, are a performer independent of poetry and also you've performed your poetry as to music. So I guess my, my long winded question is what role does the embodied performance aspect of the poem, the fruit version, what role does it play in creating the poem? So what process are you going through? If any, that's performative um, and embodied in terms of creating the poem on the page and informing the way the poem appears on the page. Does that make any sense? It does. I'm trying to think of what my answer would be. <laughs> because when I'm writing, I am I write purely without editor brain. I mean, I just kind of, I just dip into some kind of stream of consciousness, you could say. And I just write whatever. And sometimes that ends up very close to the final form of the poem and usually 90% of it gets thrown out. Um, But it's like my critical brain is not welcome at that moment. And then when I start to edit on the page, I'm really thinking what works on the page. And I feel like the performance is a third step where um, it almost integrates them where if I'm going to get in front of people and spend 
I mean, I'm very, I just have this uh, resistance to impose anything on anyone to kind of to a fault. So it makes me kind of, it's been a challenge as a performer because I hate the idea of being like, hey, stop and listen to what I'm doing. Um, but I do love holding the space. And I think because I grew up as a musician, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm used to doing that. And so when I, when I'm crafting a performance, whether it's of something that's a poem on a page or of something music that I've written, I'm very conscious of trying to kind of honor every second of the audience's attention, which is very different from stream of consciousness. And yet, I'm completely in the present because there's, to me, there's almost no more meditative present act than performance where there's just, there's no escape and whatever's happening in your head is happening in your head and whatever is, it, you know, whatever um, arises, which is always unpredictable in live performance, um, you just kind of go with it. <laughs> so in a way, I feel like there might be some sort of cycle from like the private active generation and then the kind of in-between act of, of editing and then the so public, it's almost private again, active performance. Well, when you say the performance part is the third step, the integrative step, do you not um, perform your poems to yourself as part of figuring out how they would look on the page? I mean, is there any part when you're composing when you need to hear the poem or is that not true for you? I do read it out loud as one of many criteria it has to meet. I mean, it has to look right. It has to sound right. Um, but in a way, I feel like truly my – this may be because I grew up performing music and writing poems. I never really – I always related to poetry on the page as a very alive form. And I'm a little bit of an introvert, and I love how portable it is and how personal it is. Um, so, I mean, I, I absolutely love performing and performing my poetry. But I think, in a way, its fullest performance is actually on the page. And then there's, like, almost another show that I do, which is reading my poems out loud, <laughs> yeah. which does not feel like an integral part of uh the creation of my poetry or maybe it's a it's just a different thing right. yeah as yeah. opposed to a play script which is not you know that's in a it, that's kind of in a vault waiting to be brought to life by actors and it can be studied but it's not you know it's intended to be performed but i feel like the the poems i write are intended to be read and then it's kind of a bonus that i get to perform them and experience them with people live can, can you tell us about the absence of punctuation in Fruit Geode versus uh, Divinity School? It feels definitely like a, a choice you've made, and I, I don't know if it's if it is. Yeah, I wasn't conscious, but I think it was very much part of the spacing. I mean, it's funny how I'm like so controlling. You know, the, if my editor would be like, "Well, don't you want them to have similar spacing?" And I was like, "No, this poem is one point five. This poem is two. This is one point five between the lines in the same stanza, and then two between stanzas. This has to be one, you know, uh, or one point two five." So on, on on one level, I'm very, you know, my my craft brain is is was awake and aware. Um, but on the other level, I I really did kind of you know, back to the bloody element of um, pre-verbal. I mean, I was spending all this time with, with a baby and it's kind of the language, the pre-verbal language of the body, which is part of why I feel like plants were such an amazing companion and they're really part of this book. I mean, plants plants and babies don't really need punctuations and punctuation. And um, 
I think for me, the very early days of motherhood, I, I really, I became an honorary part of the plant and baby world. I felt that strongly, maybe animal, um, you know, non-human animal world. And so it was kind of all I could do to, um, or it just felt more accurate to have just the ideas without all that nuance of (laughs) punctuation just felt kind of inappropriate for this like wordless, timeless, you know, there's like sleep is totally in its own cycle that's no longer days and nights and and time passes very differently. And to me, punctuation feels linked to, you know, the normal waking life. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you've written a a little bit about the difference between poems and songs and you you write both Uh, and given that poetry was originally historically sung um, but songs themselves aren't poems and you nevertheless perform some of your poems to music i would just love to hear more about the ways in which you distinguish between the two if you do the way that i see it it's sort of like a big bang of <laughs> human endeavors. I mean, pr- I think all creativity comes from from the human impulse to beautify and to organize the chaos and embellish in a, in a meaningful, powerful way to make beauty, right? And I think over the years of human civilization developing, we've refined that out into different forms. Um, and I sometimes think of it like maybe sports and I promise this is the only sports analogy I'll ever use, but you know, I mean, it's all the, the human body is, um, striving for achievement. Um, but it doesn't necessarily translate the skills from, you know, from one to the other are quite specialized. And yet, obviously there's a profound resonance and, and, and then there is a crossover. So that's how I see it. I mean, I don't, I think sometimes when people differentiate song lyrics from poetry it's in some kind of hierarchical way and i don't mean that at all i just see them as you know branching out from from a shared center where once it was people singing words to convey something and now we've refined you know we we have all these highly developed instruments that people specialize in and and vocal styles and uh, harmonic languages you know across the globe um and that's one thing. And then there's this highly developed, um, you know, for, for words on a pa- poetry that lives on the page, which is as distinct, I think, from performance poetry, like for poetry um, on the page, that's just developed along its own trajectory. So I, that's how, that's how I see them as basically cousins. And I happen yeah. to work in both. Well, I loved what you wrote about it, where you, you were talking, using a sailing metaphor. Yeah. So poems are like sailing without a wind where you have to generate the movement through the words in the white space and the songs are sailing on a windy day where the job isn't to create movement, but to adjust the sails with the words. I I love that adjusting of the sails with the words. So I guess my one sort of random question is yes or no, Bob Dylan, Nobel. (laughs) Um, no answer. (laughs) I don't know. You don't have an opinion. You know, I, I'm sort of on the fence about that one because He's a genius songwriter. I don't see his lyrics as poetry per se, but you know, in Judaism, there's two two 
um, there's multiple meanings of the word Torah, right? So there's the Torah, the strictest kind of most limited sense is that the Torah is the five books of Moses, which, you know, according to tradition, were given to Moses on Sinai by God. But then we also say Torah for all of the other teach. It literally means teachings. And when we say I'm studying Torah, most times it may not actually be that book. It might be something, you know, some mystical, you know, commentary from 2000 years later. Um, and so I think I'm just not a very dogmatic person and I don't really like the idea of drawing, you know, as soon as someone defines something, I, I kind of have the instinct to push back against it. So, well, it does seem like the question shouldn't be, are his songs poems? Cause he didn't win the Nobel for poetry. He won it for literature. So the question seems like the salient is, question is, should he be considered for a literature prize? Right. Versus and, whether, because I don't think the songs are poems. Right. But how are they? I mean, wouldn't that be the form of literature they would be? Or are you saying, uh, are his songs literature? Well, I guess that's the question. Right. It are, is a question. Are songs literature? Right. And I think, I guess I'm just not that interested in categorizing. What I am interested in is I'm interested in um, the maximum amount of people feeling like they can connect to art. And so on, on one level, I like the idea that this person who has touched so many people through his art, including the words, I mean, probably primarily the words, um, has um, been recognized for that in this kind of like snooty academy award imprimatur kind of way. I mean, I feel like that validates all those hearts that were touched by him rather than being like, no, we're going to give it to someone that something that you could never actually get into because it's for literature majors, you know? So I like that. What the challenge to me, and it's like, I guess I have a very pragmatic response, but is if, if, you know, if the people who do write words that are not always the most, you know, obvious accessible thing in a culture where unlike cultures like, you know, Nicaragua, where poetry is um, a part of everyday life. But, you know, when, you know, if you're going to give it to someone who's essentially writing in a poetic form, um, then there are so many poets who I think need to be lifted up and whose work deserve to be lifted up. So that more than anything, I mean, that's, and I think, you know, I'm not the only person who feels that, but I don't really care whether we call a song literature or not, because I think, again, it all comes from the same place. And it's like, you know, is a surgeon a healer? I think some are and some aren't probably, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think that there aren't that many avenues for shining light on literature in the modern world and modern society. And, and in that way, I feel like, well, he's already got his audience. Right. Yeah, I feel like that's, that's a, a pretty loss. good answer. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Alicia Joe Rabins about her poetry collection, Fruit Geode. So I wanted to ask you about perfection and wholeness in relationship to your violin playing. So you were classically trained, I believe, and then you encountered a busker playing Appalachian fiddle and uh, realized you wanted to play the violin differently and had to unlearn a lot of what you knew. So what was the element that was missing for you in playing classical violin that you... Um, saw in this busker and that you wanted to incorporate into your music. And then I have a follow-up question that I want to ask you about your poetry in relationship to this. Okay. Um, well, 
I think it might be helpful to know that I grew up playing violin alongside a true prodigy. He's <laughs> basically the best violinist of our generation. Um, and that was, it was kind of a lovely way to grow up because there was no question about it. And her family was lovely and she was lovely and it wasn't a stressful thing. So I just, I always knew I liked playing violin, but it was like, I was relatively so mediocre at it, you know, even though I was fine at it. Um, so I just did it for the joy of it. Um, and while I was, you know, lucky enough to be living at home with parents who would drive me to quartet practice and pay for lessons. Um, I loved that and it brought a lot of joy um, into my life and taught me so much about art and community. But I also loved to play violin with like, you know, 90s local indie rock bands in the Baltimore suburb where I grew up. Um, and and I, I loved being able to just kind of connect to people um, in a non... Um, well, essentially, we would write songs together, first of all. And that wasn't something, even though I did compose, that wasn't something that you would generally do in real time with other people. Um, and then I loved the local music scene. I loved how people would kind of come together around shows. And I loved how everyone could be as weird as they wanted to be. And there was so kind of, um, you know, so many rules, but so few rules. Um, and so I think in that way, I, I, it's not like I was missing something from classical music because I did very joyful, communal, classical upbringing. Um, but I saw possibilities of um, essentially a more integrated life with music in the kind of um, local bands. Um, but that wasn't quite right either because it was all super amplified and it just like there's not really room for violin, <laughs> you know, exactly. And I didn't want to just kind of just play someone else's uh, music and um, there weren't that many girls, actually, women, you know, young women playing in those bands at that moment. And so I think when I f- discovered fiddle music, it kind of fed or matched that I, I kind of instinctively I heard it and I was like, this is the thing where it's all the joy of and beauty of playing the violin, but it's super portable and you don't need anyone else around you to have like studied the same quartet or, you know, or have the same sheet music to stri- to sight read. Like it's just, it happens everywhere and anywhere. And there's definitely something about the sense that these songs had also been passed down. I mean, the same way that I would soon thereafter fall in love with Jewish tradition. I think I'm just back to the time question, fascinated with that. So yeah, so I, I kind of did a deep dive into Appalachian fiddling. <laughs> is there an analog in your experience with poetry or in other words, um, what is your relationship to uh, classical poetic forms or received forms in regard to your poetry? Is there a part of you that had to unlearn form or certain forms um, to get the energy you wanted out of your poetry uh, or is t- tell us a little bit about your relationship to that sort of the canon as you as you write poetry. That is such an interesting question. I think because poetry is so individual, and you can do it without anyone else, and somebody can read it without much structure around it. I don't think you have to make the same kinds of decisions that you have to make with music. I mean, it's almost like a branding, like music, all that's going to sound terrible, but it almost inherently involves some level of 
categorizing or branding because just to know like if you want people to come together and play old time tunes you say like old time jam and if you want people to come together and play Irish tunes say Irish jam and if you want to do you know sight reading quartets that's what you call it and those are very different things and actually people can't necessarily I mean the Irish and the old time are cousins but you can't necessarily just show up to any of those um at all actually and be able to even kind of speak the language whereas with poetry anyone can you know you can say I'm going to teach a two-hour sonnet workshop and somebody you know the meter might be challenging if it's the very first time anyone's ever written anything. But essentially, I think because it's using a language that we all speak, um, things are accessible for many more points. Um, So I think I don't feel the need to... I mean, also with music, you're deciding, like, what's my instrumentation on this? I mean, it's so different. Like, I compose on multiple instruments. So if I write a song on guitar, it's just, and I'm not a great guitarist, I'm kind of like a folk guitarist, self-taught. So that's going to go certain places. If I'm writing a song on violin through loop pedal, it's got this kind of orchestral thing, um, but also the limitations of the loop pedal. So there's just a lot more decisions. um, And I think therefore a lot more categories. So I just don't feel the need. And that's something I treasure about poetry where it seems more kind of effete and elitist or something than sitting down to play music. Um, but in a way, it's kind of the most democratic possible art form because all you need is a something to write with, <laughs> something to write on. And you don't have to decide beforehand really anything. You can just see what mm. comes out. Well, I was hoping maybe we could hear that same poem you read, but this time with violin. Yeah. Sure. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. We're going to try it. Yes. And, and just because people aren't in the room with us, um, what – it's violin through effects pedals. Is um, So when I was writing this book, Fruit Geode, I kind of decided halfway through um, that I really – I had a perform- – I did have a performative sense of it. And I had a sense that I wanted – when I read it, I wanted to be able to create a live soundtrack to read along with it. Um, and I had been – for a, a different piece I was working on, I was doing a lot of playing violin through effects pedals, um, which – changes the sound of the violin and really gives it a lot more kind of vibey. Um, it dissociates it from that traditional like violin sound. And so that is uh, the soundtrack that I've kind of been improvising for this book. So it's different every single time. I never quite know what's going to come out, which is another instance of, um, you know, performance and like kind of heightened in the momentness. So I'll, I'll do that. virus like arsenic in chocolate like a pea shoot in mud you broke me open into death in life a beautiful virus uncontrollably growing as the morning glories climb the raspberries that choke the grapes that overrun the spinach what I mean to say is Knocked off the pedestal of wholeness. How I watch you breathe in your miniature flamingo 
pajamas. We've been listening to Alicia Joe Rabin's read from Fruit Geode. So thinking of the ways you bring the mysteries down to earth, as C.D. Wright would describe it, there's also ways in which I feel like you're doing the opposite, um, that you're taking things that are too mundane or too familiar or too leaden, and you're inspiriting them or revivifying them, which I think Major Jackson alludes to in his in his blurb. Um <laughs> And that makes me think of tikkun olam, the Jewish call to repair the world. And I'm going to probably, much like I did with the Jewish mystical origin story, I'm probably going to get it wrong. So hopefully you're going to correct me. But this idea that sort of the goal of a spiritual person is to recognize the hidden shards of the broken vessels. So the hidden shards of the broken vessels make up the world, but they're hidden in the world. And, um, even in the least likely places and things, or maybe even most in the least likely places and things are, are the goal of the spiritual person is to identify and liberate the, the divine shards. Um, in one inter- interview, you say fruit geode is a book length alternative to two gruesome syllables, midlife. <laughs> and, I made myself laugh. <laughs> and, I had no idea what I was going to say next. <laughs> And you you say that plodding trochee doesn't nearly begin to capture the hard-earned luminosity of these years, the possibility of peace and gentleness towards myself and others. So I guess I want, I mean, you correct me if I did a uh, uh, disservice to Tikkun Olam, first of all, but also then talk to us about um, Fruit Geode as a midlife book. Mm-hmm. what it is celebrating or revivifying, what it's saying goodbye to, mm-hmm. what is undervalued in the in the idea of midlife uh, and what you're trying to capture. All right. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I loved your super deep tikkun olam ver- like interpretation. And that is a very, that is a mystical um, way of, of seeing it. And, at the Jewish educator in me just also needs to say that it's it's often, you know, kind of when we say tikkun olam, which literally means fixing or healing the world, it has a very pragmatic on the ground um, dealing with, you know, social justice and environmental um, destruction and kind of fixing, fixing problems that affect um, humans, um, which is back to the duality and holding them both. But I just, um, I just want to make sure that that's kind of part of that story is that you know, even like it's almost like you could, you could switch your glasses or switch which lens you're looking at it. And, and on one lens, you're liberating these sparks and it sounds very mystical. And then on the other lens, you're, you know, giving somebody a meal um, or not using, you know, that plastic thing. <laughs> and and it's it, they sound like different 
uh, practices, but it's actually one and the same. So that's my Tikkun Olam speech. Um, and I totally forgot your other question now. So talk to us about <laughs> how, how this is a midlife book. Right. Ugh. How how it's a midlife book, what is it what mundane aspect of midlife in our in our current contemporary world where you're trying to inspirit or re or revivify or or to recontextualize. Yeah. Because there's something diminishing about those yes, that word right? to you, right? Or to me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you too. <laughs> okay. Um, I, it just sounds so dis- like unsexy. Like it sounds like well, you've you've reached a, a wide plain and the grass is a little dry. You can see for many miles, and you'll still be midlife. So really, not that much is going to change, and you're kind of are who you are, and you're not old, you know, really old, and you're definitely not young. And it's just this, like, like my mind just goes blank when I hear those words. And, of course, now that I am turning 42 in a month, um, I am like, wait, I'm, I'm alive. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm, I'm growing. And, and, and not only am I still alive, but in some ways I'm, I'm more alive. And so... I think just notating that and and the way that um, I think it's another example in a way of things that I don't, one thing I'm very fascinated with in general is the difference between how things look from the outside and how they feel on the inside because I mean talking about different lenses I mean it's the it can be the same you know a thing happens and. And just the view from inside, from inside that occurrence, can be so incredibly different from how it looks, and it almost always is. And in a way, I think that's part of what I love so much about poetry. I mean, music—I feel like I can directly connect to somebody else's essence through listening to them, or playing for them, or playing with them, and that is miraculous and kind of wordless. But poetry, I can actually tell them what it feels like to be me now. And there's something to me so healing in that act of, of speaking through writing. Um, and, and because what I am now is, you know, the mother of young children and in, in midlife, I mean, it's, I think it's not what I would imagined I ever would have been writing about, but of course it's what I'm writing about. Cause it's, it's what's happening. I wanted to, connect this idea of a sort of a diminished view of midlife to your impulse to connect activities in your life to ancestral traditions. Um, because it feels like that's one of the ways in which you make midlife seem like a place of potential wisdom and not just of diminishing returns and losses. Of course you're, you're nodding towards the way your body has changed irrevocably since giving birth and the loss of former selves and the things that you can no longer do. But in a weird way, it feels like when you contextualize imperfections or loss within the imperfections and loss of generations and generations of others and the commentary on those lives, it feels like the imperfections don't feel like imperfections anymore, or they feel like part of the whole, or that brokenness is part of the whole. So I'm going to quote another thing that C.D. Wright said, 
uh, um, because it feels like it touches upon this, the no one looks to her, meaning you, to resolve her quarrel with God or history or suffering or death. No one expects the unsettling wisdom that comes from this continuous interrogation, intense listening or resistant acceptance. No one else could rake so many dreams from so much ash. Old stories, old allegories, myths, sacred and contested texts, old structures broken, perhaps beyond repair, are put in service of the new circumstances that resemble the ones experienced a million and one times before, which I just love that. Mm. And it feels like an apt description of not just your first collection, but the new one. And so I guess I wondered, is, the, is it this sense of repetition over time of people through the ages going through the same process and then making story or art from it? Is that what elevates midlife beyond midlife crisis and looking at your inevitable death? You know, I think to me, what elevates it is something that, you know, in our culture, obviously, I'm not saying anything new, but youth is, youth is the pinnacle. And then we like slowly slide down this, you know, horrible descent, um, further and further away from like the moment that we had the most collagen, you know, (laughs) and, um, that is only one way to look at the progress of life. And it's a very, I think, sad way to look at it. And, and I, I thought about this even when I, and when I was young, certainly. And then now I'm, I feel like I'm living it. Um, where I think, to me, it's less, it's less the repetition. I think the repetition thing that you're talking about is, I think about that all the time. But it, that is more tactile. That's more like literally eating breakfast, you know, <laughs> or lighting Shabbat candles on Friday or sitting down to meditate, um, it, you know, the, the, the touching into other people's lives by ritual action, um, or picking up a baby. I mean, it doesn't have to be a formal ritual, um, that just kind of moves and captivates me endlessly. Um, but to me, midlife is, is too general for, for that. I mean, I don't feel connected to other people of the past who have kind of been alive, you know, in these decades of their lives, because it's just b- too big for my brain to hold. But what I do feel connected to is just the sense that by this age, there has been heartbreak and there has been been loss. Um, and that that is actually something that hopefully makes you more and more human. And if you're lucky, more and more wise and compassionate. Um, so that it actually becomes you know, a beautiful flowering as opposed to 27 being the flowering. <laughs> and this is like the sad old petals dropping, beginning to drop off or whatever. It's like, no, this is the flowering. And it's sort of a vision switch. Um, or, they're, you know, they're both flowerings. And we're always in the flowering. I mean, the moment before death is a flowering as well. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah. And I also just want to say I, that C.D. Wright passed away um, very close to this date. And... Um, I've been thinking about her a lot and, you know, this, this first book I, I sent out many, many times and it was rejected many times and it was like a, you know, I'd never met her. Um, and I oddly had not even really read her work, even though the minute that I, I read it, I was like, I can't believe I didn't know this. I'm embarrassed about that. But, um, 
so the fact that she she chose this book in a you know kind of blind judged contest and wrote these things about it is um I don't know. It just it's still kind of I, I can hardly believe it. I just want to name <laughs> name that and kind of send gratitude to her to her her spirit. Um, and of course, now I do know her work, and I'm also so grateful for. And her final her book's work. coming out any day now, mm. I think, with Copper Canyon. Amazing. Yeah. Could we hear To Grow Wise and then The Monastery of Motherhood? Sure. To Grow Wise. One day I awoke to find myself in an unfamiliar body. Knees like tree trunks, passages in my belly, eyes two pools of tea. I began to understand the two sides of this sheath I wear, an old used suit and the chariot I ride through blessed days and nights. I began to feel the ones who will live millennia from now hiding inside my pockets like poppy seeds. By this time, I could barely remember the body I wore before. I thought to myself, now that I have been broken, I can begin. The Monastery of Motherhood It's hard to face my ugly old self again, whether by the pig farm or metropolitan crossroads. But the hardest is alone with children. I'd cut out my lungs for her, but then I spray her in the face with the hose when she claws for the baby. And so in the monastery of motherhood, I find the devil in my own heart. And God, too, in the form of El Shaddai, the breast god, nursing as I write. And oh, how the helpless babe grows into an angry being. I pray they'll be better than me. I've done my best so far and been ashamed of it. I've been listening to Alicia Joe Rabin's read from Fruit Geode. So, so when C.D. Wright says in the quote, I just read that you take old structures that are broken and broken beyond repair, and it's these broken things themselves that are put in the service of, of vitalizing the new. It sort of suggests that your orientation to Judaism might be not one of blind acceptance and unquestioning faith, but a wrestling with tradition. And so I was curious if you could speak to some of the broken things you find in the Jewish tradition um, that don't work for you and or feel wrong or feel absent or glossed over. And, and then the ways in which you're engaging in an active repair with the broken things? Hmm. Because I did not grow up in an observant house, um, I came to Judaism very much out of desire and love. And I always, I, because I actually felt something missing in my secular life. I felt like I needed some some craft, you know, I had so much craft in music and poetry that I've been lucky enough to, to study. Um, but I had no craft in dealing with, um, spirituality, divinity, you know, death, how to live a good life. And so I think, I think that because of that, my orientation has always been 
less less to look comprehensively at Judaism, whatever that even means, because there's so many Judaisms, um, and more in a very pragmatic way to say, <laughs> how is this here for me and how can it help? And and that's also my orient, orientation when I'm teaching it. I mean, how is this here for my my you know, my 12-year-old bat mitzvah student or my 70-year-old um, adult student and how how can it help people's lives? How can it be a resource? So I think, you know, when, especially when something is um, approached as a choice, so I, I think there's a lot more problems in, um, you know, in more Orthodox Judaism, which sees itself as commanded to do the mitzvot, the commandments um, that, you know, God, according to tradition, gives in the Torah and the rabbis kind of learn out from there. That, you know, you can say, well, there's there's more, um, I think, opportunities for, for problematic imbalances there. And I'm not in any way saying that there's not a lot of problems in each of the Judaisms because there's problems in everything human. But I think I just have a more kind of like harvest or scavenge or salvage um, what what works or or kind of take the flame and transfer it. So, I, so that said, I will say that it's a patriarchal religion and um, I'm a feminist and I always have been. And so a lot of my work has been um, looking at stories of women in the Torah and bringing them to light. Um, and so I think in, if I had one, you know, one, one way of engaging with something broken, it would be that. But I do feel that primarily it's, it's, it is this idea of, of salvaging something that my, my great-grandparents walked away from and I felt like I actually really needed. So, so going on this essentially pilgrimage and finding these rituals that are so helpful to me and these precepts and teachings that are helpful to me and then, and then passing them on. And I really do believe we get to make them our own and it only, you know, a human culture only lives through humans and same with religions. And so I think I, I just kind of live it the way I want to live it and the way that feels right. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I just get to do that. So I don't, there's not a lot of encounter necessarily with the brokenness because I just kind of take the parts that I like. <laughs> but in a way, like when you're doing your Girls in Trouble song cycle of biblical women, it sort of, the subtext to that is you're drawing forth women that maybe aren't being given enough attention in, in the general conversation. Absolutely. So, and, and the big, and I would say structurally, again, like that's the one thing where I feel like, you know, it's like any group that has been de-centered. It's like the, the men's stories were at the center and then the women's stories were sort of ancillary. Um, and I'm flipping that and I'm singing and teaching about the women's stories um, through the songs and also through a whole curriculum I've kind of that I have created to go along with the songs to bring their stories out. So that does have a kind of balancing um, act. Yeah. Uh, and you say making, we, we can make these things our own. I mean, obviously in Fruit Geode where we have biblical appearances of women like Tamar, Tamar, is that mm -hmm, correct? How yeah. you say it? Yeah. She's appearing in a poem that's otherwise about potty training. <laughs> so it's a great uh, unexpected cameo of a, of a, um, a biblical figure in a, in a 
mundane contemporary activity. Yes. And I, I mean, you know, the reason I call my songs Girls in Trouble is because I often write about the difficult parts of the women's stories. And I think that that's another kind of imbalance is that too often religion is seen as a merely prescriptive um, uh, mechanism and our stories are seen even though the stories themselves, when you read them, are not particularly <laughs> prescriptive, but it just this kind of holy attitude of like, we're going to look at this holy book and tell this holy story. Um, and I think when you actually read the stories themselves and see how much nuance, complication, darkness, challenge, difficulty the characters were going through, I mean, it's a little bit like the midlife thing. It's like, it's so easy to glaze over and be like, biblical women, boring, <laughs> uh, midlife, boring. But when you actually kind of go into it, there are these crazy stories, a lot of many of which are pretty R-rated, which also reflect so profoundly to me the challenges in my own life, even though the, the particulars are different. But they're essentially stories about humans having imperfect experiences and figuring out what to do and sometimes – it being the right decision and sometimes it being the wrong decision and then what happens through that and how they become often more, more human through that. And that to me is, is very comforting. Could you read one last goodbye for us? One last goodbye to the one who greeted me in the mirror, who waited around the corner, who quit this and quit that, who started this and that, to the one who got everything she wanted and never once realized. Extrovert, introvert, tart body pillow of the body, no belly, small belly, cute belly. To the one who left a Sumerian storm demon named Lilitu behind. To the one who carried my babies through the darkness. To the one who named them. The one who climbed the scaffolding of my own heart to offer sunflowers to the angry gods. The one who was alone. I bury those minutes in the garden as the baby grows free of his babiness and walks away. I've been listening to Alicia Joe Rabin's read from Fruit Geode. So maybe you could, we get an appearance of a, a pre-Hebrew goddess, Lili Tu's, perhaps the predecessor of Lilith. Perhaps you can orient us to who both of these women are, uh, if you can. And But also, just I'm curious about your reaching back to other Near Eastern goddesses, because I'm suspecting that they were probably forbidden to be worshipped by Jews at the time, these other goddesses. Yeah, they technically still are. <laughs> yeah, they technically still are, right? Yeah. Um, well, you want me to tell the story of Lilith? Or it may, yeah, I mean, if people who don't know who Lilith is, maybe briefly, you could yeah. you could speak to her, and and also your impulse to draw farther back than yeah than, than Jewish traditions. Yes. I would say that's kind of probably the biggest difference in my spiritual practice since having kids, and in the second book to the first book is I think along with kind of falling deep into the world of plants and babies, I have kind of fallen into the world of. Um, the feminine divine, which before I related to in a more traditional Jewish way as like Shekhinah, who's this kind of feminine manifestation of God. And now I'm really interested in the actual pre-Israelite goddesses, like, like you were saying, um, who were essentially subsumed into the one God of Israelite culture, um, who 
was male. And a, a, according to some research um, that I've read, it seems like actually the, the male gods took a lot of the power from the female goddesses in Sumerian culture before that happened. So it's not just like the Israelites came and, you know, banished the goddesses, but it, that, that trend was happening and this sort of put the cap on it. Um, and so, I mean, Lilitu actually is, is not really a goddess, but she, she she's thought to potentially be the source for Lilith, who otherwise is kind of a mysterious extra biblical character who has this strong mythological uh, life in Jewish tradition, but is not actually in the text anywhere. Um, there's a, a bird called a Lilit, which appears once in, in prophets, so it may be connected to that. But essentially, um, one one main, main Lilith legend that the mystics uh, kind of came up with or passed down is that she was a proto-Eve. And there's two creation stories in Genesis. And in the first, uh, man and woman are made as one and then split. And then the second woman is taken from man's rib or side. And... You know, so the traditional explanation is, oh, it's just two different ways of saying the same story. But the mystical explanation is that that first woman was actually Lilith. And because she was 50% of the whole before she, they were split, she thought she should get a full vote and specifically ask for certain positions in bed. And Adam was dismayed and went and complained to God, who uh, was definitely on Adam's side and apologized and banished Lilith and then started over with, with Adam's rib to make Eve so she would always know she was um, subservient. And according to legend, when Lilith was banished, she sort of became the demoness wife of this kind of proto-Satan demon, Samael, and they would have you know hundreds of demon babies every night that would die by the morning. There's all these gruesome, gruesome legends. So she was really feared, um, and especially in terms of, you know, it's linked to this book because she was seen as a baby killer and um, a succubus who was kind of around matters of the body and sexuality and, and very early infancy. She was seen to be very dangerous. So women would create amulets against her to protect them. Well, there's also these, I know in Poland, I think it was medieval Poland, if a man ejaculated at night, yes. Lilith's spirit would come and, and, and create demon babies. Right. Well, and she made she right, according, and one of the ways they saw it was that she, the reason that would happen at night is because she would appear and entice him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so she makes a little, I have a song about her also called We Are Androgynous, um, and so I think about her a lot because I perform that song a lot and I teach about it a lot. And and I felt like, uh, you know, the, the Sumerian goddesses were very much with me through this passage into motherhood. Um, and so they, they kind of come up in this book as well. Could you read a couple more poems? Sure. Uh, my Whole Vagina Life and Materia Medica. <laughs> I had to stop reading My Whole Vagina Life in public because it was embarrassing me, but I'm happy to do it on the radio. All right. You don't have, you don't. No, I'm very happy to, really. I was just like, oh, this is actually weird to, if I'm seeing people, but I don't believe anyone's actually out there. So this is okay. Even though you are, I know you are. Okay. My whole vagina life. Like living in a hollowed out tree, visited by woodland creatures and blood red crystals. There were small babies up there waiting, mornings and midnights. It led me to conference rooms and cedar groves. Sometimes it hurt a lot or itched. Honestly, it probably had a lot to do with your choosing me. 
In the end, nobody came out of it. They took the escape hatch. Sometimes it was a kelp sculpture. Once I wrote a poem about it that nobody liked. I was always intrigued by the sweet slippery smells, corners where I used to hide and smoke or read behind the unadorned bushes near the high school. Adolescence is a pomegranate translated through the language of that cave. Marriage is a mango and death a Dorian in that fruity tunnel around which I revolve night and day. Materia Medica When Achilles was born, his mother held him by the heel and dipped him in a vat of yarrow tea to protect him from harm. Many years later, he died of a wound on the ankle where her fingers touched him and the yarrow could not. Squirrel's tail, warrior plant, thousand leaf, hero. I, too, print mortality on my daughter. Show her the white yarrow growing beside the concrete. When she was born, a masked doctor held her by the heel. I heard her yowl before I saw her. The wound of birth tore us in two. We regarded each other across unfamiliar air. We regard each other still. Daughter, we are sometimes girls, sometimes crones, or sisters, or friends. I teach you what I know. I make a tea bath for you of Yarrow's thousand leaves. Witch, warrior, doctor, mother. I've been listening to Alicia Joe Rabin's read from Fruit Geode. So when I think about your gestures back in time to conjure forth women's stories as a, a way to anchor your own stories beyond yourself. I wonder, do you do this with uh, poetic lineages? Are there poets that living or dead who you would consider yourself in relationship to either in this book or more generally, uh, or that you're conjuring forth? You know, I've never been a very, encyclopedic reader in a certain way where I kind of like I read things and they they stay with me forever but they kind of lose the name they were associated with and join into like this soup um I mean I, I find it really really important to read other poets and I, I really love reading other poets but there's this way in which I think they're all equally part of everything that I write. Um, the way I do feel that about kind of spiritual texts in, in general or wisdom literature, I feel like um, more kind of specifically in conversation with. And I could definitely name, I mean, I could name some people who have influence, influenced me tremendously, but I think when I'm in that generative state I was talking about before, of kind of in the river, it's just, it's all like I'm, I'm bathing in everything I've ever encountered in my life and every, every poet I've ever read. And, um, so you wouldn't, yeah. would you place yourself or do you believe in a poetics of Jewishness or would you place yourself in a, in a Jewish poetic tradition ever? Like when, would you ever orient yourself to Oppen or Rukeyser or Rich or? 
or Joy Graham. Or, Joy or, Graham's Jewish? She's half, I mean, she, oh, yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. She's written about it in her poems. Oh. Yeah. I must have Same with one. Louise Glick. Uh, also. See, I'm not, I'm not but, uh, encyclopedic. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was, I mean, obviously you, you connect it very much to Jewishness and to Judaism. Yeah, my my feeling is in terms of like being, you know, a Jewish poet or a woman poet, any of those, mother poet even, I feel like that's a curatorial, curatorial distinction. So I have no problem with it at all. I'd be happy to, I mean, obviously any of those people that you just mentioned, I'd be like beyond honored to be included in the same universe. Um, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, I'm writing from some kind of like place in myself that is deeper than this particular lifetime's gender or tradition, even while I'm incorporating a lot of those things. So I could, I feel like that's for readers to kind of categorize me and I'm happy and honored to be categorized kind of any way people want to, but I don't, I don't think about that. And I think, you know, when I'm writing something, I would say with music, I feel a little more directly, you know, often I will be thinking of a few different songs while writing or a tra- specific songwriting tradition or something like I'll choose a genre to write a song in. And so there's, you know, it, it evokes these um, greats of the genre for me. I think with poetry, there is this purity and simplicity of like radical presence where it just, it really all falls away. Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) You've mentioned a poem by Norman Fisher called Questions. Oh, yeah. As one of your favorite tools for generative workshop. I don't know this poem, but I, 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 I was curious what you do with it, with this poem and and whether you generally use prompts and or in teaching or whether you use prompts or constraints in writing? Yeah, well, in teaching, so I've been occasionally teaching this uh, workshop that's been so fun, a generative workshop, um, a poetic uh, spiritual autobiography. And we essentially read a number of poets writing in different modes about spirituality for a short, you know, we'll read, a, read an excerpt of, you know, a Christian. Christopher Smart, um, or of this Norman Fisher, um, beautiful Norman Fisher poem, for example. And, um, and then we'll do, you know, seven minutes of writing in that mode. So by the end, you have this interesting kind of like kaleidoscopic perspective, um, which you never would have gotten to by sitting down and deciding to write something, because there's all these different voices influencing you and you're consciously writing in different styles. And then, you know, what people do with it is up to them. So some people have linked it as a kind of section poem and some people just choose one of them and that becomes a poem or it's just an exercise and it doesn't go anywhere. But Norman Fisher's uh, poem is all questions. And so it, I just, I mean, I love the interrogative move um, in poetry. And I also, I do love restrictions, um, generative restrictions. Like if you write a poem that is all questions, you will get to some lines you never would have been able to get to otherwise. Um, Are there constraints in fruit geode? So, no, I would say my main constraint is that I wrote a lot of it on my phone. (laughs) And uh, I was often holding a baby. And I wrote, um, I've been doing this thing called the grind for years on and off where you commit per month. Uh, You can commit 
during each month at the beginning of the month if you want to or not to just send something out to a group of essentially strangers each day and they send something out to you and there's no feedback or anything and that it was it's more of a like that's my generative prompt <laughs> is write something today or you are failing the grind and that's why it was often you know oh my gosh i'm like sitting in the car and there's you know 10 minutes till kid pick up from daycare or I'm nursing a baby or I'm, you know, but I have to do my grind or I just lay down to bed and remember that I have to do my grind poem. And so it's like, I just kind of whip out my phone type, you know, so without any kind of thought, I just kind of, you know, write something. And then there's a whole editorial process where I throw most of it out and weave some of it together and combine these five to make this other thing. Um, but that's actually an amazing – it's so simple, but it's an amazing uh, formal constraint for me to oh. just <laughs> write something every day. I don't know if it's formal, but temporal. Yeah. So just to return briefly back to poetics and inspiration, you, you've named the Talmud as a big inspiration for you. So maybe you could just – for someone who doesn't know what the Talmud is, could you just briefly say w- what it is and or, and what Midrash is? Yeah. And then why that's inspirational, why that motive interrogation is inspirational to you as a writer. Yeah. So like I said before, there's these five books of Moses, which is, you know, the Genesis, Exodus, etc. Um, and that's what we call the written Torah, along with prophets and later writings um, in Judaism. And the tradition is that along with that came an oral Torah, which was only passed down orally, was not allowed to be written down. And it basically was this interface between the way we actually live and the written text. So, for example, if the written text says, do not work on the Sabbath, well, what the heck is work? You know, how are you going to observe a commandment to not work? You have to define work, right? So the oral text, uh, oral Torah spells that out for you and says, oh, actually, you know, well, let's say that the labor that it took to build the tabernacle to worship God in the desert after the exodus from Egypt, let's use that as... um, the structure where we kind of derive work from that because that was a, a really um, kind of critical generative building work and we're stopping from building this day. So, you know, so for many years it wasn't written down. And then when the temple was, the ancient temple was destroyed by the Romans, a lot of the traditions were around the temple. So they began to get lost. And so in a sort of emergency reinvention move, um, some of the rabbis got together and said, it's time to write down to break the law in order to save the law, right? So we have to write down the oral Torah now. And so they started to write it down. And because it had been passed on orally, it was these little snippets, essentially. So they they wrote it down and they decided which to codify. Um, Were they writing on their phone while (laughs) holding a baby? (laughs) No, but their wives might have been holding babies. (laughs) And I mean, and along with that, I do believe, I, I strongly believe that there was an entire oral Torah of the women that did not get written down. And I do see that as part of my ritual work and perhaps some of my poetic work is to, um, continue to create those rituals. But anyway, so, so essentially they wrote down this, uh, this oral Torah in these little snippets, but it raised its own questions. Um, and so another oral kind of tradition grew up around that. And so when they wrote down the oral traditions that grew up around the oral traditions that they had written down, <laughs> so essentially the commentary on the commentary, that is the Talmud. Um, and so it, it will have a little snippet of that original oral Torah and then pages of discussions about it, but it soon spins out and 
it's very associative. It's what we you know used to call postmodern. I mean, it it's not like a direct prescription of do this, do that. It's quite the opposite. It'll be, you know, a rabbi will kind of associatively say, oh, well, that reminds me of this story, which will lead to some recipe, which will lead to some ancient Aramaic saying, which will lead to a question of law. Um, And I mean, my favorite book is Ulysses. And it reminds me of Ulysses in that sense where it's both epic and so concerned with the particulars of what it what it means to live in a body, what it means to live in a marriage, what it means to live in a city or a town. Um, well, you've you've called James Joyce your favorite Jewish writer. Yeah, <laughs> keep cracking myself up. <laughs> <laughs> and that Ulysses is a giant midrash on the Odyssey. So yes. maybe that's an entry point to what is midrash. Yes, and so midrash is a specific Jewish form. Which there's a lot of these. In the Talmud. So this is one of the things that comes up in this written down oral commentary. Midrash is essentially fanfic. So it's taking those five books of the Torah, looking at stories that have questions or gaps in them, and sort of proposing an episode, (laughs) fitting it in there, kind of double-clicking on that gap and opening it up and saying, well, this is what happened in this gap. This is how we, we explain this. And it's an amazing tradition because you can have hundreds of mutually exclusive midrashim commenting on the same part. So it's not authoritative. It's really a literary, generative, imaginative Mm. tradition of looking at the text, basically critically identifying a problem with it and then proposing a creative solution. Have you read James Joyce's Judaic Other? the book no you have to read that i don't that know book. about it it sounds it's like a so dream. good okay yeah i mean it's looking at leopold bloom's jewishness but pulling a lot of post-colonial theory and other things into it and looking at the way joyce takes the stereotypes of jews and troubles them in the book it's really interesting amazing yeah i mean i know they i just remember reading how he said like the irish you know the irish and the jews are brother races which makes so much sense You've written an essay called Spiritual Twins, Poetry, Chavrutas, where you talk about the study, the orthodox study unit is a pair. And you contrast and juxtapose this to the idea of a writer writing by themselves and in solitary inspiration and propose this study pair as as something um, that might contain some wisdom for writers. So how, how, how do you get from... A person studying the Talmud who would always be doing so in a study pair to um, something to glean from that for somebody who's writing a poem, for instance. Yeah. Well, the the chavruta, right, the pair, first of all, the root is chaver, which means friend. So there's this kind of positivity and community um, element. And then it's also uh, a productively antagonistic relationship where you're challenging the other person to – you're challenging their interpretations. And by doing that, you make them a better interpreter. And I mean I've been lucky to have some poetry chabrutas over the years um, where we edit each other's work, um, you know, it no holds – I mean always trying to be kind but – where we what we go to each other for is like what part isn't holding up and um i think that that's something that so many poets do and i think just kind of honoring that as a a, a kind of beautiful part of the process of writing that it's not supposed to be this heroic 
you know, one person thing that we take from beginning to end and then finally show it to the world, but that there's this um, collaborative element where we're all, all of our DNA is imprinting on other people's work and, and vice versa. And really we're all engaged in a bigger project, which is the human endeavor of, of creating beauty in this case through poetry. And what is the film that you've made? <laughs> so there's an amazing local artist named Lisa Schoenberg, who lives in Portland, also does a lot of work in New York. And she's a drummer and entomologist and composer. Um, and we're friends. And we both, a couple years ago, realized we were both turning 40. And I was like, I've never played drums. I would love to learn drums. I play all these melody instruments and songwriter, you know. And she is Jewish but didn't really have any formal Jewish education. So she was like, I've always wanted to have a bat mitzvah. <laughs> so we came up at first jokingly and then it got more and more serious um, with this idea to do a Skillshare of bat mitzvah lessons. So Torah chanting and Jewish history and all that stuff. Um, uh, bartering for drum lessons. And it grew into this really beautiful year-long kind of art project, um, which the filmmaker Jody Darby documented. And so we're going to premiere it in a month or two, and then it'll be just streaming online if anyone wants to watch it. So it's sort of investigating, you know, we're both really interested in environmentalism. And so we did some of our studying out in the woods. And um, I had her, I officiated her bat mitzvah in, in our house, and we're kind of dancing around the yard. And so looking at what does it mean, sort of like you were saying before, to take these, you know, ancient, our ancient heritage and make it like us right now here. And also the midlife thing, like what does it mean to keep learning and keep doing weird art projects and challenging ourselves and being a beginner at things and trusting each other as teachers and not needing to get it from some outside authority. Well, I'd love to end with a final poem, but before we do, I, I'm imagining you have quite a few other things coming down the the pike. So tell us what else we're going to, we can anticipate from you. Um, well, I, I'm working on this feature length film, indie feature film with the director, Alicia J. Rose, whose name is bizarrely similar to mine. <laughs> we're both AJRs. And we're going to do production in June. Um, so hopefully that will be out in 2020. So that's A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, which is basically the story of the year I spent um, in an artist residency on Wall Street during the year that the Great Recession happened and the entire financial apparatus of the country fell apart. And Bernie Madoff's largest scam in financial history by Bernie Madoff was revealed. So considering those events and what it says about American culture and what it says, um, how I deal with being from the same you know, tribe as this person, um, looking at it through the, the, the eyes of an artist. And I am working on a spiritual memoir right now. That's sort of the story of how I grew up very secular and then went very deep into these texts and traditions and how I am ending up uh, for the moment the way that I am and just sort of telling that that story. So I'm, I'm deep in that right now, which is my first long form prose, which is very fun and humbling and exciting. Well, maybe the, even though it's transient, maybe the ultimate Havruta would be between you and your midwife. So let's end with uh, uh, a poem to my midwife. Okay. This is from Mary Grabowska, who is a Portland midwife who is really amazing. Thanks, Mary. To my midwife, you sat in the rocking chair 
and watched to keep me safe. You checked your phone. You checked my cervix. When it had gone on for too long, you drove me to the hospital on all fours in the trunk of your hatchback as I screamed over the speed bumps. So much for home birth. Strangers watched in the ER as you braced your body against the wall so I could lean on you. Oh, Mary, now I'm alone with my baby, and you are elsewhere, your hand inside some other mother. So great having you on the show, Alicia. Thank you so much, David. I've been talking today to Alicia Jo Rabins about her latest book from Augury Books, Fruit Geode. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. Alicia Jo Rabins has added four new and unpublished poems to the Patreon bonus archive, which joins supplemental material by Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, Lainey Zumas, John Keane, Jen Bourbon, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog e Sapatita Mi, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.